You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning, church. It's good to see you. If you're new here, my name's Jamin. I'm one of the pastors here at Citizens. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for those watching online. We're so glad you're able to participate uh, wherever you are. If you'll turn with me to Luke chapter 10. And yes, I know we are in a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew, and we're in Matthew 5. In fact, uh, the passage, Matthew 5, 13 through 16, uh, undergirds all that we're talking about this month, and including uh, this morning. But where we'll end this morning, uh, what we'll get to about halfway through is actually Luke 10 and the really famous story that Jesus tells there about the Good Samaritan. That's where we'll go in a minute. If you've missed the past few Sundays, um, I invite you to go back and listen. You'll need those Sundays to have kind of full context for why we're talking about what we're talking about and where we're going. Uh, two weeks ago, we talked through uh, Matthew 13 through 16, which is you're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world, and really uh, offered the exposition, the explanation of what those things mean. And then the rest of the month is really the application of if the church is the salt of the earth, if the church is the light of the world, what does that look like? And, and what should we then care about? What should we then consider together? That meant last week talking about the sanctity of life, that we are those who defend, protect the sacredness and dignity of all human life from womb all the way to tomb. And this morning, that has us having once again a conversation about uh, ethnic harmony or racial unity. The Rollers, uh, it's me, my wife Carrie, and our three children, nine, seven, and two. And most evenings, we try to eat dinner at the dinner table together. It's something that we care about. We don't always make it there, but most evenings we try to do that. There are two things that we do around the dinner table every time we sit down together. One of those things that we do is a conversation called high point, low point, which everyone goes around and they name what their high point of the day was and what their low point of the day was. And it's pretty standard for my kids. Like most days, the high point was playing with friends, or playing video games and the low point was cleaning my room or doing homework or something like that. Uh, some nights it gets a little uh, passive aggressive, like if, if there's been a lot of fighting that day, so, so every day, uh, someone's low point might sound something like, you know, my low point was having a really mean brother all day or something like that. They'll take jabs or my son, if, there's, if he's fought with his sister a lot, he'll say something like, my low point was that mom and dad didn't have more sons. You know, something that cuts deep. There's a lot of love around the, the roller dinner table. Um, if maybe they've been in trouble that day and they're trying to earn some favor back or something, their high point will be something like, you know, I'm just, my high point's having the best dad in the world, which always works. I'll, I'll always hear that and be manipulated by that. Before high point, low point though, we pray. And the rules are, it's not just one person who prays. Anyone who wants to pray can pray and I'll always end the prayer and we'll thank God for the food and pray for whatever you want. Well, last week, my middle child, my, my oldest daughter, who's seven, uh, and he's, she's in first grade. She had been at school all day. And uh, at school, they watched a video on that particular day. They watched a video about the life and legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in preparation for celebrating his life last Monday. And so in that video, there were just a, a lot of things that she saw and she came home talking about that video and obviously was um, very troubled by some things that she heard and saw and very interested by some of the things that she heard and saw. And so she, she wanted to ask some questions about his life and what happened to him and was troubled by a lot of it. And so when it, when it came time for dinner that night and I said, who wants to pray? She said, I'd like to pray. 
And so she did, and she prayed for all of her usuals, thank you for food, and mom and dad, and baby sister, and brother who's sometimes mean, and the dog, and all that. And then she ended the prayer and prayed this, God, I pray that people of all different skin colors would get along. God, I pray that people of all different skin colors would get along. And it's the kind of, of prayer that uh, is rooted in the innocence of a child, but also rooted in just a timeliness in the world. And what she's praying for is she's praying for a future. That's not true in the present, but she's praying for a future where people do not divide, people don't discriminate, people don't fight over or because of different color or different ethnicity or ways that they're different. And what she's praying for is she's praying for a future that anyone who calls himself a Christian should care deeply about. Praying for a future that, especially in this moment, we, as the church, should lean into the parts of that prayer that are the cause of the church, the cause of those who follow Christ. So this month, we're in Matthew 5, 13 through 16, asking, what does it mean right now to be salt of the earth and, and light of the world? And I want to lean into that second metaphor to root us in an understanding of why we care, how we have this conversation. We've said before, part of being light of the world, what that means is there is a future that God is bringing. When Jesus returns and heaven and earth are reunited and there will be an eternity of, of peace and an eternity of joy and, and that world will be free of tears and free of sin and free of division and just, and just filled with peace. And to be light of the world is to be those who hold on to that future, who so believe in that future that we start to live in the present in light of that future so that those in the present get a little taste of that future. The way I've described it before is um, the church is like a movie trailer for the world that God is bringing. It's a movie trailer for the kingdom that both is and is to come. Like it's not the movie, it's the thing that comes before the movie to give you a picture of what the movie is going to be like. And any good trailer is going to tell you a little bit about the story of the movie and a little about the plot and the feel and the tone and the hopes and the ideas that the trailer comes out and it so represents the movie that it builds expectation for it, interest in it. And the church plays that kind of a preview role in the world. We are the preview people in the present, holding on to the future in such a way that part of God's glorious future is visible in us. And so that future is one where there's peace and love and worship and justice. And we as the preview people live lives of peace and love and worship and justice because we want in the present to at least, at least show a semblance of what's coming in the future. That's essential to what it means to be the church. That's essential to the mission of the church. And part of that future, do you know what it includes? You know what marks that future? Part of that future contains the answer to my little girl's prayer. Because in that future that God's bringing, people of all skin colors will get along. Not just get along, but people of all different classes and colors and ethnicities will love each other. They'll worship together. And we get these little pictures of that future all throughout the Bible. The, the most compelling, the one that I think about most often is in Revelation 7, 9, and 10. Would you read it with me? It'll be on the screen behind me. After this, I looked. This is the future. This is after Jesus returns. After this, I looked. And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and before the lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. What, what a scene. 
Like, what a magnificent scene. Like, and if we could just, all kinds of people, thousands of languages, myriad of different faces, one heart. And, and, and just to maybe use our imaginations to try to put ourselves there and what that will feel like. Have you, have you ever worshipped among a group of Christians who are different than you? Have you ever worshipped among Christians who are different, vastly different from you culturally or ethnically? Like when I read this passage, I think of a few worship experiences I had when I was a child. My dad is a pastor. He's been a pastor. He started pastoring the year I was born. He's been a pastor my entire life. And the first church that he pastored was in Duncanville, Texas. And um, they shared a building with a Spanish-speaking church. And uh, his church would have our services in the morning. And then right after that, the Spanish-speaking church would have their services. And I remember one time I lingered and stayed after church and, and went to one of their services. And I heard, uh, how great thou art, the old hymn sung in Spanish. And I remember even just as a child, I remember just being blown away at the thought that God understands this. Like God can receive this worship. Like I, I only speak one language and, and do so poorly. And yet God receives worship in thousands of languages. And I remember my takeaway from that is like, gosh, how great must God be? How, how vast and expansive and glorious must God be that right now he can receive worship in all different tongues from all different kinds of people. My dad pastored a predominantly white church, but he had a friend, a black friend who pastored a predominantly black church called Agape Fellowship right down the road. And once or twice a year, they would swap pulpits and, and, and his friend would come preach at our church and my dad would go preach at Agape. And I remember the first time I went with him, there were two things that stuck out. When my dad preached, the people in the pews responded. It was crazy. Like, uh, I was not used to that. In, in dad's church, what I was used to is him preaching. And while most people agreed, not just agreed, most people believe that what he was saying were the most true things in the world. They just had no intention of showing that agreement in any visible way, right? But at Agape, like he would say something and they would say amen or hallelujah or glory. They would agree not just in their mind, but they would agree with their mouth. You should, you should try it. Like I think, <laughs> I think you might like it actually. I know I would. Uh, the other thing was their worship like nothing I'd ever experienced. In the church I was, I, was, I was part of then, our songs were deeply theological, but mostly like somber in tone in some ways, which has its place. But worshiping there, it was just joy and celebration. Like I had never experienced. And, and they never, did not grow tired of worshiping and joy and celebration. And I just thought the first memory I have of being a part of a worship service that was marked by that kind of jubilation, that kind of excitement and celebration for who our God is and what he's done was part of a, in a room of people who looked different from me. And so in being part of that worship, they were my teacher. And I remember my takeaway was, gosh, how worthy of celebration must our God be? Another time I worshiped with a group of Chinese Christians who just had about them a reverence for God, like a godly fear of the Lord to worship with them was to enter into space that they had consecrated, that this is God's sacred space. And I, my takeaway was, gosh, how holy must God be? Every time, every time I've worshiped in a room culturally, ethnically different from me, something of the expanse of God, something of the wonder of God, something of the majesty of God is stretched. Can you imagine the day when all those rooms come together? Can you imagine the day when all kinds of people, thousands of languages, myriads of faces, one heart, 
singing, salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. How wonderful that will be to worship together as that diverse people and just to sit and have the simultaneous experience of the expanse and beauty and majesty and wonder of God stretched in front of us because we're worshiping and not everyone looks like us. And just consider the beauty of a people filled with diversity that is free of discrimination, complete unity in heart, like all different colors and cultures, not just getting along, but have a shared love because we have a shared savior and a shared story. Like all stand together and will sing, I was lost and he found me. That will be everyone's story. I was dead, he raised me to life. At times I was faithless, he's always been faithful. At times I was filled with joy and he was the object of that joy. At times I was filled with sorrow and he's the one who caught my tears and who comforted me in my pain. He filled my life with good things. Jesus, we love you, all will say. And that story does not belong to any one color or any one culture. That story belongs to all who belong to Jesus and have shared love and unity regardless of color and culture. Diverse but not divided. That's coming in the future. And when God brings that in the future, it will remain forever. And so to my daughter, I can know, babe, your prayer will be answered. That day is coming. Nothing can stop a promise-keeping God from fulfilling that promised future. Okay. If that's the future and we're the preview people, if that's the light that's going to invade the darkness and we're the light of the world, right? If that's what's true, and we are those who live in the present in light of the future, here's what that means. It means there is a place where my daughter can begin to see her prayer answered now. There is a place where you see in the present pockets of people in a divided world, but you see in the present pockets of people who are diverse but are not divided. You know where that place is? The church of Jesus. The gathering of on earth right now of those who have the same shared love for Jesus, the same Savior and the same shared story. Who in the room who's a Christian can't say, right now I was lost, he found me, I was dead, he raised me to life. At times I was faithless, he's always been faithful. Jesus, we love you. And that story doesn't belong to anyone's skin color, anyone ethnicity. That story belongs to all who belong to Jesus. And so where that is true, what should be happening is that wherever there's a gathering of believers, wherever that gospel is preached, wherever that Savior is shared and those stories are shared, it should be forming Christian communities that are diverse, not divided. Here at Citizens, just to be very clear, we want that here. Desire that here deeply to, to become a people who are growing more and more diverse because we want to be a faithful preview people, which means we don't all look alike, but we all love alike because we've been loved in the same way. And I don't know about you, surely you've already maybe felt this in the 13 minutes I've been talking. This feels especially challenging right now. Um, you know, it would be tone deaf to talk about the future that's diverse, not divided. It would be tone deaf to talk about the hope that we become a bit of that in the present and not acknowledge just the reality of how heartbreakingly fractured things are right now around race. Not just around race, but especially around race. Race, racial division, racial injustice, racial inequality, racial tension. That's been a dominant conversation for a long time now, but especially the last nine months. Like if 2020, if the, if the number one conversation was COVID, a close second 
was around race. And just remember with me some of the headlines of the last few months, the heartbreaking murder of George Floyd last May, race riots last summer, some of which turned violent. Just a few weeks ago, a Confederate flag paraded through the Capitol. All examples in their own right, in different ways of racial fracture and division and injustice and out of each event, out of each one of those moments, what is magnified is not just racial division or inequality or injustice where it exists, but what's magnified is our inability to even talk about those divisions in ways that are constructive. Like what we believe to be the problem and, and where we look for solutions. I'm, I'm not naive enough to think that right now, in this moment, watching online or in the room, that even those events that I just mentioned don't stir question for some or disagreement for some or... The surrounding world is diverse and divided. It's not trending towards unity, friends. It's not moving towards ethnic harmony. And we're in here talking about being the preview people. We're in here amidst as all that's going on in the world. And we're saying, okay, we want to be the people that live out of the unity that the gospel brings. And it would just be so easy to look around and say, man, I don't think it's possible. It's just, it's too complicated. Things are too controversial. And I know for me, if I can be honest, which I always try to be, talking about it just feels more difficult than it has in the past. And some of that's just my own limits. There's a lot I need to learn and I'm a slow learner. Some of that is the limits of this moment, the preaching moment. I just can't say all that there is to say. And it's, it's difficult in that many, the, the way it works is that we've all overheard or been part of or digested conversations about race, all of us. You can't live where we live and not at least have been exposed to some conversation or at least know enough to have formed an opinion about something. And what happens is, is that we overhear those conversations or part of those conversations and then we come into the next conversation with the words and conclusions and emotions and definitions of all previous conversations. And what that amounts to more often than not is a ton of assumption and not a ton of charity which means there's a really good chance in this sermon that some hear things I don't say or take something different than I intend. And I, I get that. In a way, I don't fault anyone for that because of the climate that we live in and the climate has conditioned us to be slow to listen and quick to conclude. So it's difficult. I want you to hear something. If it is more difficult, something is more true than that. Something that's greater than that, something that weighs heavier in my heart than that. It's not just more difficult. Beyond that, it's as important as it's ever been. It's just as important. Where we exist and we see around us a culture that's diverse and divided, divided along lines of race and ethnicity, for the church to stay silent says two things that we can't afford to say. For the church to stay silent, it says, one, we're okay with the way things are. Or two, we have no answer for the way things are. And neither are true. At least here at Citizens Church, we want to see God bring healing to division. We want him to, to bring justice where there's injustice and whatever we can do to be a part of that, not okay with the way things are. And while I don't think we have every answer, I know I certainly do not. I, there is no doubt in my mind that we have the most important one. It's Jesus, his gospel. I refuse to believe. I refuse to believe that it's more controversial than the gospel is powerful. I refuse to believe the divide is greater than the gospel is unifying. I refuse to believe the wounds are deeper than the gospel can heal. And I refuse to hear my daughter's prayer and say, sorry, babe, it's gotten too complicated for the church to do anything or say anything. We've got to back out and you'll just have to wait for heaven. I refuse. I refuse. 
I don't believe that. We cannot abandon the call to be the light in the darkness. We cannot abandon the call to be the preview of the future. And because for us that future is so explicitly diverse, not divided, because that future is filled with every tribe and tongue and people and nation, part of being light of the world is holding on to the answers that God's given us. And so where we hold in one hand the hope to be that preview, and then we hold in the other hand the reality of how divided things are, we need to remember that God has given us what we need. God has given us an understanding of the problem, the answer, and the opportunity. The problem, the answer, and the opportunity. We'll start with the problem. My friend uh, Conway Edwards, who's pastor of One Community Church just up the road here in Plano, he was talking this last summer to a group of Christians who had gathered, and he was specifically talking about racism when he said this. But one of the things he said was, we as Christians know it's not a skin issue, it's a sin issue. And there was something of the simplicity of that and in the, in, in, in the uh, ability to remember that that just struck me. It's not a skin issue, it's a sin issue. It's not a, a skin problem, it's a sin problem. It doesn't start with what's on the surface. The divisions that we see at the very root, at the very foundational level, what we know is it starts in the heart because we know this is a sinful world. We said last week, there's something that's true about every single human, two things that are true. Every single human is sacred and sinful. There's something sacred that needs to be protected. There's a dignity that needs to be defended and also something broken that needs to be put back together and healed. And what sin does in all of our lives is sin separates. You see that as early as Genesis 3, sin separates people from one another. And then early on in the Bible story, you see that rejection of others, that separation between humankind falling along the lines of ethnicity. And so what the Bible is littered with are stories of people who dismiss one another or at worst dehumanize one another because they are different from one another. And that's sin. And, and you see it showing up in ways that are really dark. Like in Exodus chapter one, you see the Egyptians beginning to enslave the Israelites. And here was Pharaoh's argument for why he wanted to do that. Exodus one says, this is Pharaoh talking. The Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. Do you hear the argument? Sin, how it comes out of the heart along the lines of ethnic differences. The Israelites, those people, he says, the ones who are not Egyptians like us are a threat to us. So let's deal shrewdly with them so they never become like us by reminding them through slavery that they're not us and ensuring that they'll never be us. And so where that comes from, sin rooted in the sinful condition that feels safe or powerful around those who look like me and feels threatened by those who don't feel safe and powerful around those who look like me and willing to oppress those who don't to protect or promote that power. That's Egypt and Exodus. That's Nazi Germany. That's American chattel slavery. That's the Rwandan genocide from the mid-90s. The Bible and history are replete with the dark examples of how sin that begins in the human heart will manifest in these devastating ways, putting people who are different from one another in war against one another or one oppressing the other. And those are the dark examples. But listen, the Bible also includes much more domesticated examples that are still sin. Not just the dark, not just the egregious, not just the, the stuff that splatters the pages of history, but the New Testament spills a ton of ink addressing ethnic hostility between Jew and Gentile. And certainly there's much more than ethnicity going on there because of the story of the Bible, but there's not less than ethnicity going on there. Even the apostle Peter has to be rebuked by Paul in Galatians because of his treatment of Gentiles in Antioch. So wherever... 
Our starting place in the conversation is with our anthropology, our biblical understanding of what's wrong with humanity and how that's going to come out of humanity in sinful ways, especially, not just, but especially in the things that we divide over and discriminate because of. Where there are sinful people in the world, there will be prejudice, partiality, division, racism, even among God's people. The Bible says it. History proves it. It's been one of the problems in the world ever since the world started having problems. So what a Christian will never be able to say until Jesus comes back. What a Christian can't say right now is that those things are over. I'm not saying that societies don't become more equitable. I think they can. This one has. I'm not saying that this country hadn't made improvements, but one of the things I've encountered is that some Christians are quick to acknowledge the presence of every other sin issue, but when you talk about racism or any version of sin that falls along ethnic lines, the knee-jerk is skepticism or denial. And I don't understand that, knowing what we know. Lust is a problem, totally. Yes, see that everywhere. Uh, Pride is a problem. Oh yeah, that's in my heart, and that's all over humanity. Greed is a problem. Love of self is a problem. Yes and amen. Our society is sick with it. Racism is a problem. Ah, I don't know. I think that's behind us. I think, we've, I think we've moved past that. And how could that be true? Just quite simply, if it's a sin problem and sin is still a problem, how could that be true? Like I know that just in our small community of faith, I know daughters are still going home to dads saying, I got called that racial slur at school again. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying every time someone is pointed to something and says that's racism that God agrees with that. I'm not saying that every time someone points at a system and says it's racist that God agrees. I know there needs to be space to dialogue around what is complicated and even space to maybe not see things the same way. Increasing complexity calls for mutual patience and increasing wisdom. That's how Christians have this conversation. But I am saying as a people who know that the pull of the human heart is towards partiality and prejudice, where there is a voice crying out, the knee-jerk can't be denial, at least it has to be listening. At least it has to be empathy. We must be concerned, not combative. Sincere, not skeptical. Like one of the sad stories I've heard from people of color who I love is just, Jamin, I'm exhausted. In all of this, I'm just exhausted. And I'm exhausted because I've experienced prejudice in forms of racism. And often, when I look to other believers and ask them to share those burdens, I first have to prove that I have them before anyone will help me carry them. Like looking at someone and saying, my leg is broken and all I really need is a shoulder to hold on to for a bit and hearing back, actually, I need to watch you limp first before I offer help. That can't be the way. Not from the people who should be listeners, like who are those who are commanded to be slow to speak and quick to listen. And if it's a sin problem and sin is still a problem, we of all people should know of its presence still in the world and its presence even still in our hearts, the prejudice and partiality that exists in my heart, in your heart. That's the problem. The answer is Jesus. The answer is the story that Jesus tells, at least the starting place, is the story Jesus tells to arm his people. He knows his world is riddled with this kind of sin. And what he will say is, love your neighbor. Luke chapter 10. We'll start in verse 30, but let me give you the background of why Jesus tells this story. A man came up to Jesus. He's a Jew. He's a Jewish lawyer, which means he's an expert in the Old Testament. He has most of it memorized, which is crazy to think about. He comes up to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus knows his study. Jesus knows 
his story. And so he says, what do you think? You know the Old Testament as well as anybody. And so the lawyer claps back and says, you got to love God and you got to love your neighbor. And that's how you inherit eternal life. And Jesus says, that's it. You got it. Right answer. And then he asks what the Bible calls a self-justifying question. A question he already thought he knew the answer to, and he wanted to ask to feel justified because he assumed that Jesus agreed with the answer that he already had. And so he looks at Jesus, and here's the self-justifying question. Who is my neighbor? Who are the humans that I have to love? And then from that, who are the ones I don't have to worry about loving? And here's how Jesus responds by telling one of his most well-known stories. Look at verse 30. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now pause with me for a minute. Now the question is, who is my neighbor? Jesus doesn't answer. He tells a story. And in the story, if you're the lawyer, if we could put ourselves in the place of the lawyer, what he's probably thinking is he's looking into the story for the answer. And Jesus starts and says, there's a man who's beaten and left for dead. And so the lawyer's like, okay, is he my neighbor? Is he not? How do, I, how do I know, right? So that's kind of the question that lingers over the story. And Jesus doesn't answer yet. All he says is there's someone in need. And then it picks up. 31. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. Let's pause. He, here's what you need to know about the priest, the lawyer who's listening to the story for the answer to his question. Once he heard priest, he would have thought, okay, that guy's my neighbor. He's a Jew. He believes like me. He's righteous like me. He knows the law like me. And it keeps going. And when the priest saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Verse 32. So likewise, a Levite, here's what you need to know about the Levite. The Jew would have heard Levite and thought, that's my neighbor. He's a Jew like me. He studies like me. He's righteous like me. We're the same ethnic group. And it picks back up. When he came to a place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. So there's no answer for the lawyer yet. He, he know, all that Jesus has done is he said, okay, there's three men in the story. Two are for sure my neighbor because they look like me. They act like me. They believe like me. And then one, I'm not sure, but I know he's on the ground and he's in need. And then 33. But a, what's the word? Samaritan. As he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion and went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he sent him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, took care of him. The next day, took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And here's the punchline. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. Don't miss this, friends. The question is, who do I have to love? More honestly, the question from the lawyer is, do you, Jesus, agree with the limits that I've put around my love? Do you agree with the way that I have separated people into those I do have to love and those I don't have to love? And Jesus tells a story that pushes past those limits along the line of ethnicity. Jesus, his most famous teaching on love is situated in one of the most toxic ethnic conflicts of Jesus' day. It's the parable of the good who. Samaritan. Jesus could have picked a thousand other heroes for his story, a priest or a Levite or someone else, but he intentionally chooses a Samaritan to force a confrontation that he know this man needed. Jews and Samaritans hated each other, hated each other. 
Samaritans were the descendants of Jews who intermarried with the Assyrians 700 years before Jesus after the Assyrians conquered Israel. So to the Jews, they were traitors, they were sellouts. They were this combination of Jews who were not loyal to their own country and pagans who ruined their country. The Jews would openly, publicly call Samaritans dogs. They would walk. There was a way to go to Jerusalem that went through Samaria. It was the fastest way. The Jews would intentionally walk an extra day around Samaria so that they didn't have to run into any Samaritans. There was a Jewish general a hundred years before Jesus. He defeated a Samaritan army in a Samaritan city. That city was next to a river. He ordered, after their defeat, he ordered his army to start digging underneath the city in hopes that that city would fall into the river. It was not enough for him that he defeated them. He wanted to erase them. Hatred was thick. And a lawyer comes up to Jesus wanting to learn about love, asking questions about love. Who do I have to love? And the Jewish man wants to learn about love and who does Jesus make his teacher his enemy? Who he makes his teacher is the one who belongs to a race of people who his people have already decided not only do we not have to love, we're justified in our hate. And what Jesus is saying, the whole point of the story is that kind of love won't do. That kind of love is not the distinct love that marks the people of God. Uh, That kind of love is the way that the world loves, but my people don't love like that. We don't just simply love within the boundaries of what we share in common or within the boundaries of our ethnic hostilities. We love in a way that overcomes those hostilities. If you love along the lines of shared color and only shared color, if you only love along the lines of shared class, if you only love along the lines of shared belief, you're no different than anybody else. Everyone loves that way. But the people of God love in a different way. They don't only love along the lines of shared color. They don't only love along the lines of shared belief or shared experience. They love along the lines of shared humanity, which means everyone is in, which means I am a neighbor to all. I, I am offering that kind of Samaritan selfless sacrificial pay out of my own pocket kind of love to all those around me. Dr. Derwin Gray is a pastor in South Carolina. He said something last week and I immediately thought of the parable of the Good Samaritan. He said this, You cannot love someone beyond what you've labeled them. You can't love someone beyond what you've labeled them. And there are certain labels that we will offer and built into those labels are limits on love that we're okay with. Like, which is natural. It's to name someone something that makes me feel justified in withholding love. Here's what the point of the parable of the Good Samaritan is, that if you're a follower of Jesus, Jesus has already decided for you what that label is that you give to everyone, neighbor, The name that you give is anyone that you see who bears the image of God, which is everyone you see. First and foremost, foundationally, you are to be a neighbor to them. That person who looks different than me, who are they to me, Jesus? They're your neighbor, someone I'm calling you to love. That person who I disagree with, that person who represents everything I think is wrong right now, who are they to me, Jesus? They're your neighbor, someone I'm calling you to love more than they are all the other labels or names I think that they deserve. They are first someone that God calls me to love. I will never label in a way that strips someone of their humanity and dignity or absolves me of my call to love. And while I may be able to look at someone in all of our differences and not see my image, God still sees his. God still sees his. Always. Jesus asks at the end, who was a neighbor? The lawyer, I imagine him hanging his head and saying the one who showed mercy. And Jesus responds, you go and do likewise. Friend, he was not just talking to that lawyer 2,000 years ago. He's talking to me and he's talking to you. Go and love likewise. And that's a lofty call. Like 
That's a call to a life of limitless love. And how is that possible? If we understand the point Jesus is making and we're honest with our own limits and our own failures and and the ways that that our our heart is unfractured, the, the question that we will ask is, how can I even do that? Because that's exactly how you have been loved by God in Jesus. That's the way that Jesus has loved you. Jesus has been a neighbor to you. That is the love that we see in the gospel, at the very heart of the gospel, the love of Jesus on the cross is this kind of neighbor love. Can you imagine how hopeless you would be if Jesus loved you only based on what you have in common with him? If your hope for salvation was all the things that you and Jesus share the same, how hopeless would that be? Like if before saving you, he inspected your life and looked for similarities and he's looking, okay, are they ethnically similar? Well, that's a problem. I don't see any Middle Eastern Palestinian Jews from Nazareth in the room. If you're here, stay. I'd love to talk to you after. I don't see. Okay, what about morally? He's perfect, never sinned. Life that was impeccable and perfect. Please God every moment. And I don't see any perfect people in the room. Okay, what about belief? Not a single one of us Agree with God about everything. That's the whole point of sanctification. We especially didn't share all of the same beliefs with God the moment that he saved us, right? And so if he loves us based on what we have in common with him, we're hopeless. If he loved the way that many people in 2021 love, we're hopeless. But he loves different and praise God that he loves us in a different way. Praise God that his love is distinct from that. Praise God that he loves like a neighbor who first saw you as a human in need of rescue, and you can see in his love, he, 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 like the Samaritan, gets on the ground and picks you up and binds up your wounds and pays your debt in his death for sinners, his resurrection in victory. He's loving us in the exact way he's calling us to love, a sacrificial love that's not bound by the limits of shared labels. So the problem is sin. The answer is the gospel of Jesus coming out of his followers as a love for neighbor that is not bound by what divides, but generously offers what heals because we've been loved like that. And again, friends, I don't think it answers every single question there is to answer, but of all the answers, it's the one that matters most, especially is the one that matters most to the church, especially the one that matters most to us. So we have in a divided world, as a people who know the problem, as a people who have the answer that matters most, we have in a divided world opportunity to be a people because of our shared savior and shared story, because of the distinct love that we have and that we offer, we have the opportunity to be a preview. We have an opportunity to be a pocket of the future in the present where we are diverse, but united in heart. Diverse, not divided. Here's how we're pursuing that as a church. Here's how Citizens Church is pursuing that desire to be a faithful preview. Five things. I'll be quick. One, by preaching the gospel of Jesus every week. Preaching the gospel of Jesus in all of the spaces where we minister to people. And that is not a throwaway answer. That is by no means a cliche answer. It is the message of Christ crucified, risen, ascended, coming again that changes people. It's the message that the hostility between you and God has been removed in Jesus and the hostility between you and anyone who belongs like you to Jesus can be removed because of that gospel. That gathering of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, they only got there because they heard about Jesus. They're only united because of their shared love for Jesus because of the gospel that they once heard. So I, like, I know that I say the same thing every week. 
I unapologetically say the same thing every week because someone every week needs to hear for the first time or needs to hear for the thousandth time. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have life everlasting. And that's the message that we see early in the church, reconciled Jew and Gentile. That's the message that reconciles our differences. And so as that message goes out from this pulpit music stand, as that message goes out from our ministries into a world around us that is diverse, We believe that message is sufficient to bridge the divide, to bring people under shared love for God. So number one is to preach the gospel of Jesus. Number, thank you, brother. Number two, we want to grow more diverse in leadership at our church, elders and staff. Admittedly, that's been slower than we've wanted it to be, but we believe it's important to not just have a congregation that is diverse, not divided, but also a leadership that's diverse, not divided. Number three, partnerships with other churches who care about this. One community church in Plano, we've partnered with them in an initiative that they started called Unity Table. It's something that came from a bunch of pastors who believe in the problem, the answer, the opportunity. And what it means is the fifth Sunday of every month, we're inviting our churches and inviting our cities to share a meal with someone who doesn't look like you. We announce that every time it's coming up. There are resources to help that. Four, spaces. We believe it's our responsibility as a church to create spaces where we can be discipled and having conversations as Christians about ethnic harmony and racial unity. We offered a class that did this this last fall. We hope to offer it again in spring of this year. Some of our elders, staff members, and church members who went through that class are in the foyer at a table. would love to talk to you about that. If you want to be a part of that, they'd love to sign you up for that. Uh, I read beautiful testimonies this week from some stories that came out of that class. And, and really where it starts is it starts with realizing that what happens is, is this conversation around us culturally is had in a few ways. It's, it's had um, publicly by people who are really distant from one another often. And what they'll do is they'll take two people and they'll, they'll start with the most controversial piece of the conversation and saying, can you say what you say, what you believe about the controversy and then find some sort of commonality together? And that's just not how we do things as Christians. We take two people and we put Jesus in the middle and we say, you start there and you work shoulder to shoulder together considering God's heart and how God's heart will flesh out. Five, last one. If you missed all of it else, hear, hear this. By inviting you to care. By inviting you to care. And I know you do. Many of you do. All of you do. But the point that needs to be stated is that this can't just be a pastor's sermon or an elder initiative. This has to be a people's heart. This has to be something that marks a a church of people, that we would be honest where the sin of prejudice and partiality exists in us, that we would take serious the answer God's given us, the call in our life to love our neighbor, and we together, we together, gosh, would dream about what it could look like for God's diverse future to begin invading our present and would hold on to that hope, which means whoever you are, hear me, friend, whoever you are, wherever you come from, whatever you look like, we want you here. You are wanted here. There's a place for you. In fact, you make this place more beautiful than we would be without you. There are no second-class citizens at Citizens Church. We love you. And whoever you are, you are invited to share this heart with our church. You are invited to share this hope for being a present picture of God's diverse future. And oh, that our children, oh, that our world could see in us a bit of the heavenly gathering right now. 
Oh, that the world around us could see a united people with a shared savior and a shared story saying salvation belongs to our God and to the lamb. And we love one another because we've been loved by him. And we have so much that our hearts can unify around. And what a word that that would preach to a world that is so divided. What a word that would preach to a world that's so fractured and broken. Would you pray with me? God, we pray. I, as pastor of this church, pray. We, as Citizens Church, pray that people of all skin colors would get along. We pray, God. It's the kind of hope, it's the kind of prayer that in a world that is just so, in such turmoil, it's one of those kinds of prayers that there's just not enough human initiative, there's not enough human skill, there's not enough human know-how to see that prayer come to fruition, which means, God, we need you to do what only you can do. Which means, God, we need your presence to fall in a way that we can't contrive and that we don't deserve. But we desire that, oh God. Lord, where there is need for repentance in the room, I pray by your spirit you would guide in a repentance that leads to the fruits of repentance, a repentance that is invited, Lord, to acknowledge prejudice in our hearts or partiality in our hearts, not invited out of guilt or out of condemnation, but invited out of your kindness because it is your kindness that leads to repentance. And you as a kind God are inviting us to examine our hearts. Where have I labeled in a way that limits love? Where have I failed to be a neighbor that sees not all that's shared in common, but sees shared humanity and gets on the ground to offer the kind of love that we have received from you, O Jesus, who left heaven to come to the ground all the way to the cross to be a neighbor to us. Help us. Help us to live this out, God. Help us to be patient with one another. Help us to believe the best about one another. We love you. And we need you. And I just pray, God. I pray that you would increase our confidence in what you can do through your people. God, I pray that you would increase our expectation. That we would ask about our church, God. Not how are things going, but what is God doing? So that we would see your hand at work. We love you. We need you. We're grateful for you. Amen.